I will be reading from Luke 1, 39 to 55. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning to everyone. As Mary Marion mentioned, or we are in this season of waiting. Sometimes it feels like a long time. Sometimes it feels like you're kind of bouncing back and forth between Christmas already being here and then coming back here, and we're still preparing for Christmas. I know the the the, the Christmas carols are, and you know, out shopping this week are are all out there. They're all playing. Um, and and interestingly enough, we have a we have a kind of Christmas carol. Uh, in our passage today, known as the uh, Mary Song of the Magnificat. It's, um, it's about as kind of different from most Christmas songs as you can imagine. We're, uh, what are we, about eight days from Christmas. As we back up a little on our story, we got about nine months till the birth of Jesus because Mary, where we pick this up, has just learned from the angel Gabriel that she, though she's a virgin, will conceive and give birth to a child. And it's not just any child. This child will be called the Son of the Most High. He will take the throne of his father, David. So that's what uh, Gabriel tells Mary. She believes it. She consents to it. She has this great line, let it it be with me according to your word. Uh, We don't know exactly how old Mary was, probably 13, 14, 15 let me just say that's a lot for a teenager. I've got a couple teenagers. You all were teenagers at one point. Being a teenager is not always the easiest thing. There's challenges. There's friend dynamics. There's pressure. There's figuring out who you were, who you are. Uh, Mary's challenge is bearing the Son of God. That's a lot. That's a lot on her plate. So Mary, after she discovers what's going to happen, she goes on a walk. She goes on more of a trek south to Judea. Right? We're up, if you think about it, up north, Galilee, uh, Nazareth, Judea is down to the south. We're going to Zechariah's house, so it's going to be somewhere near uh, Jerusalem, 60 miles, three or four days, uh, challenging terrain, hilly terrain. And don't forget, pregnant, right? 
first trimester. Those of you who have, have, have carried a child know that's going to be tough that first trimester. This woman is rugged. <laughs> this woman is tough. I, I want to. That's what I want you to see. New Testament scholar Mary Schertz says that we should probably paint over our images of an anemic and frail Mary that we carry around inside our heads and include muscles and roughened hands and chapped lips of outdoor life. Is that a different image of Mary? I mean, this is like y'all, many of you grew up on farms. You want this woman helping with chores in the morning. Like That's the kind of young woman this is, and she's in a hurry. We're not told why, but she, we're told that she wants to get to Judea quickly to visit her older relative, Elizabeth. Uh, so, you know, Mary's been told that Elizabeth is pregnant, but she's not been instructed to go to Judea, but she does that. Okay, she arrives at her destination. The home of Zechariah. It's interesting. I keep thinking in this story, like, where is Zechariah? I mean, we don't know. It's like, is he just on the couch, like, watching this all transpire? Remember, he can't, he can't speak, so he's just, like, forced into silence to, to watch all this happen. But it's this very exuberant um, exchange. Like, one, I think one time I saw my brother who I... Uh, we live far away. We don't see each other for a while. And I was like, hey. And he's like, hey. And, and Christian's like, is that how you all, like, <laughs> when my wife gets together with her sisters, there's lots of excitement. There's often tears, which I don't understand why there's tears, but lots of things are happening. That's, this, is a, this is a big gap. This is loud voice, excitement. This is singing. These two women are coming together who share this this, uh, this bond of having an unexpected pregnancy. And I want to look at the kind of the theme of reversals in this, this uh, passage for today. And this is the first reversal we see. Things are getting flipped around, right? And the first reversal we see is that Mary is being honored by Elizabeth. That is not the way that's supposed to go in their social world. It should be the opposite. Elizabeth definitely has the higher status in this relationship. She, uh, she is the wife of a priest. She's a descendant of Aaron. She's married, and she's older. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, we tend to idolize youth. We tend to see age as, as being a problem and something to hide from. I mean, that is so different than most of the world and certainly most of history, where age has been seen as giving one status and honor. So we kind of have to do some work. Again, we are in a culture that idolizes youth. No, no, in this culture, you do not idolize teenage girls, okay? Not only is she a teenager, she's pregnant. She's not supposed to be pregnant. Remember that. Like, Elizabeth, you walk in and she's pregnant, and Elizabeth knows Elizabeth should be, right? There should be judgment. There should be kind of scorn, but that's not what happens. And the other thing is that Mary... Uh, it's from Nazareth. Remember in uh, John's gospel, Nathaniel has this great line where he finds out the Messiah is from Nazareth, and he says, can anything good from, come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from this backwoods town in Galilee? Right, so Mary should be judged. She should be criticized. At best, she should be tolerated by Elizabeth, but instead she's honored and blessed. How do we see Jesus is forming in the womb of Mary, and yet even that presence in the world is starting to reverse things. It's starting to kind of make things topsy-turvy. A young teenager from Nazareth is being honored and blessed by her older relative. So what exactly is Mary being blessed 
for? Well, the first thing she says is, blessed among women. That, that, lang- I, that does not ring a bell to me at all. I don't know where that language comes from, but those are the words to describe another heroine in the story of the Bible, J.L. I don't know if you remember the story about J.L. Yeah, if you know one thing about J.L., it's uh, one of the more violent stories in the Bible. Uh, J.L. is the heroine of the, Mount, of the Battle of Mount Tabor in the book of Judges. She delivers the Israelites from the army of King Jabin. And after that, she drives a, pen, a tent peg through the skull of Sisera, who's the commander of the king's army. Very violent scene. After she does that, Deborah, who is leading Israel at the time, proclaims that she is most blessed among women. And Edward Sree points out that this language that Elizabeth is using to describe Mary, blessed are you among women, is the language of women who, who the Lord uses to rescue his people from enemies. So that this is the tradition Mary is standing in. Of course, there's a difference. Right? Mary's not driving tent pegs through anybody's head. Thankfully, unlike warrior women of old, she's not doing physical battle, but she's bearing the one who will rescue Israel. She's in that line, in that tradition. She's blessed for that. Elizabeth continues, but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So now Elizabeth is using the language of kings. This is court, court uh, expression to honor the king. Like, you are the mother of my king. And if we remember, Mary had been told that she would, she would bear a son who would take the throne of his father David. And, and, and now Elizabeth is confirming that, that that will happen. All right, so Mary is blessed because she will bear a king. And finally, she's blessed because she believed the Lord's promises to her. Right? She has faith. She believed what God had promised to her. She consented. But I think it's safe to say Mary only partially understands what's happening. She said, yes. It's, uh, it's a courageous yes, it's a steely yes, <clears throat> it's in the vein of heroines of old, but it's an, it's an act of faith, but I'm sure Mary has some questions. Remember, she's not supposed to be pregnant, she's betrothed, which is the first stage of marriage process, which means she's officially, it's kind of complicated, she's officially married, but she should not be pregnant, because she's not yet living with Joseph, that's why in, uh, I think it's Matthew's gospel, we read that Joseph was going to have to divorce her, right? She should not be pregnant. It's a problem. So she's got some understanding of what's going on. She's got enough understanding to say, yes, I want that. But she needs help coming to grips with what's happening. So she needs Elizabeth, right? No, I want you to notice how Mary has this word from God. She doesn't go off into the woods to kind of work this out in her head on retreat, She doesn't go on a journey of self-exploration to really mine the depths of herself and find out if she has uh, whatever it takes to do this. Uh, You know, we tend to kind of go inward in our culture. No, she goes, she heads to a person. She moves to community. She doesn't know exactly what she needs, but clearly she knows she needs Elizabeth. And I think there's a number of beautiful things about this scene of these two women, but I think one of the really, let's just get really practical here. It shows us we need other people on the journey of faith. We live in a highly, highly individualistic society. We primarily think about our, uh, our faith as kind of my relationship with God, and that is absolutely an essential part. It's a good reminder, the call to follow Jesus is always a call into community. 
Right? When we are baptized, we are baptized into a people. We are saved into a people. God continues to save us. God continues to heal us as part of a people. And one of the reasons it's so important that we follow Jesus in community is that we need other people to help us understand ourselves, to help us understand our gifts, our challenges, to help us understand what God may be saying to us. Right? Sometimes we, maybe we use this language or we hear someone use this language. God told me, fill in the blank, God told me uh, to go to this place, to do this thing, to park my car at this place, wherever, whatever we hear God telling us. And usually, if you kind of probe into that, like, tell me more about, like, what you heard from God. So you, you had something like Gabriel, and Gabriel came, and you were, like, shocked because there was a messenger ahead of you, and then you heard the audible word of God tell you to do this. I think they'd say, no, 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 no. I just had this sense. I had this feeling that God was telling me something. Does God communicate with us that way? Absolutely. Absolutely. But here's my point. We need help discerning what God is saying to us. But maybe that thing that we're pretty sure we heard from God, um, that, that maybe that thing we, we, we didn't want to hear, and so we're kind of ignoring it, maybe we need somebody to verify that. Or maybe the opposite. Maybe we think we heard something from God that we wanted to hear, but maybe that's not what God is really saying. It's, it's hard. It's, it takes work. It takes community. It's hard to discern the will of God. And I think Mary is a perfect example of this. Mary had Gabriel right in front of her. Mary heard the audible voice of Gabriel telling him, this is what's going to happen, and she didn't fully understand. She had partial understanding. She had as clear of a word from God as you can imagine, and she needed help. She needed Elizabeth. She needed community to discern what she was being called to. And if that is the case, how much more do we need community? Right? How much more do we need other disciples of Jesus who can help us understand things about ourselves we can't, whether it's from hearing from God, what gifts we have, how God may be working in our lives? You know, oftentimes, other people see us much better and much more clearly than we see ourselves. Often that's the case with gifts. So oftentimes, if somebody has a gift, they may not even recognize it because it comes so easy to them, they just think we all can do it. And it takes someone else on the outside to say, no, this is a gift that you have. You may not recognize it, but you have a gift. <clears throat> this is women in our passage. Men, we need this too. <laughs> we need the equivalent of Elizabeth's in our life. We need people who are willing to go to deeper places with us. I'm fine talking about sports. I'll talk about the news. We got to go deeper than that as disciples. If that's all we're at is in superficial conversation, we got to go deeper. We got to go deeper. We need Elizabeth. We need equivalents of Elizabeth in our lives to help us understand how God is working in our lives. We need embodied community. Right? Imagine if, if, um, if Mary could have just sent Elizabeth a text. I think this would have played out a little bit differently. I don't think, notice how embodied this experience is. Mary walks in. She greets Elizabeth. She says words, audible words. And what happens? A baby leaps in the womb. This is a totally embodied physical experience. This is not going to happen with Mary texting Elizabeth down in Judea up in Nazareth. Right? We need real people, embodied people in community to discern God's will. But then notice this is, this is a shift that happens in our passage 
after Elizabeth says this to Mary. Because remember, Mary's heard a lot of things from Gabriel. You're favored by God. You're going to give birth to the Son of God. You'll be the mother of a king. She consents. She believes. She says, yes, there's no rejoicing. We haven't seen any rejoicing on Mary's part. And it's like, it's like the penny drops. It's like what, it, what Elizabeth said, it all just comes home to her, and she just burst out in song, in joy. My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. This is the second reversal we see in our passage. Remember, Mary... Basically, in most people's eyes, is a nobody, but not in the eyes of God, not in the eyes of the mighty one. God sees Mary, this teenager from Nazareth, in her humble state, and God lifts her up. Not because of what Mary has done. Mary hasn't done anything, but because of that's the nature of God. God our God is a God who sees those who are low in the eyes of society, and God lifts those up. And Mary gets it. She gets that she is blessed. She says, all generations of Roman Catholics will call me blessed. She doesn't say that, does she? She says, all generations will call me blessed. I know, I know Protestants like, get a little bit nervous like, about blessing Mary, which is strange because like, as people of the Bible, it's like kind of right there in the text <laughs> that there, we, all generations will call me blessed. So I think we can absolutely feel good about blessing Mary. I think we should feel really good. Mary is a model disciple. Mary is blessed, and she is no pushover. Again, go back to Mary Short's comment. We need to banish any images of our mind of some kind of passive lady, because look at this song. This is the most unsentimental Christmas carol you can imagine. This is as far from chestnuts roasting over an open fire as you can possibly get. I don't mind chestnuts roasting over an open fire, I don't mind the, the warm nostalgia of Christmas. I get into it too. But we've got to realize this is not a nostalgic song. This is a uh, subversive song, right? Songs about chestnuts and mistletoe don't get banned. The Magnificat, as far as I understand, has been banned at least three times in three different countries. By the end, uh, before the end of British rule in India, the Magnificat was prohibited from being sung in churches, in the 1980s, the Guatemalan government banned it because they believed that Mary's words provoked revolutionary zeal. And the military dictatorship that ruled Argentina from 1976 to 1983 also banned it. So during this time in Argentina, there was the disappearance of lots of children. Mothers started emblazoning the names of those children and Mary's song, and they would take them to the Capitol Plaza. The government did not like that. And soon, this was outlawed. So think about it. What would cause a government who seems to have all the power to ban a song sung by a 14-year-old peasant girl 2,000 years ago? It's a subversive song. It's a threatening song. Right? Especially if you find yourself on the top. If you're proud, if you have power, if you have money, you are the one in this song that's getting yanked down. Right? Look at verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Again, nobody's going to give you a hard time about singing about chestnuts. Government does not care if you're singing about roasted chestnuts. You start singing a song about taking a ruler down for their throne, governments do not like that language. That's when you get in trouble then and now. Think about it. 
this isn't hypothetical for Mary. There's rulers on thrones in Mary's world. Who's on the throne? Well, the throne of the Roman Empire is Caesar Augustus. Right? Incidentally, Caesar Augustus proclaims himself to be a son of God. His adopted father, Julius Caesar, has been recognized by the Roman Senate as divine. So Augustus says, I am a son of God. We've got two sons of God here. Which one is the real son of God? Not only that, there's a king. There's a king of Judea, King Herod. If you remember King Herod, we'll soon you'll probably hear about King Herod after Christmas. Herod does not take kindly to anybody making a claim to his throne, right? He gets word that there's a rival king. What does he do? He massacres. Goes to Bethlehem, massacres boys under two years old. Rulers in power do not like this song. As NT scholar, or New, um, sorry, as New Testament scholar Scott McKnight points out, if you were a first century poor woman, if you were hungry and oppressed, if you had experienced the injustices of Herod the Great, and if you stood up in Jerusalem and announced that the proud and the rulers and the rich would be yanked down from their high places, it is likely you'd be tried for treason and put to death for disturbing the peace. That's a revolutionary song. Mary's Magnificat is, uh, for Mary's world, but it's a little bit like what We Shall Overcome was to the African-American community in the U.S. in the 1960s and 70s. Scott McKnight recalls the 1970s sitting in an all-school assembly at high school when African-American students gathered together to sing this song, We Shall Overcome, we shall walk hand in hand. We shall all be free. We are not alone. The whole wide world around, we shall overcome. And McKnight describes this steely protest, listen, as both exciting and scary. That's the kind of song Mary's Magnificat is. It's both exciting and it's scary. Who's exciting for? For those in the low on the totem pole, the humble, the physically hungry, this is absolutely good news, right? If you are on the downside of this, your response to Mary's song is amen, hallelujah. The good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, so often comes to the poor and the powerless first. And we see that, we see that in Jesus' ministry, right? Think of, let me give you a couple examples. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and wants to follow him. The gospel is a challenge to him. The gospel says your wealth is a liability. Your wealth keeps you from entering the kingdom of heaven. That's backwards, totally backwards. Later on in Luke's gospel, if you are somebody who's confident of your own righteousness, if you are proud, if you are a Pharisee in Jesus' parable, you think you're better than other people, the gospel is not going to be good news to you. The gospel is going to humble, humble you. If you are proud, you will have your proud thoughts scattered by the gospel. You're used to having power, right? You're, you're way high up in business. You're used to having power. You're used to having people work for you. The gospel is going to tell you, get in the back of the line. Now, that's good news, but it's challenging news. Because Jesus' kingdom is topsy-turvy. It's backwards, it looks backwards then, it looks backwards now. We just, I think we've just kind of domesticated it enough where we don't always see that. This isn't just what Mary's saying. What will Jesus later proclaim in Luke's gospel? Blessed are, I don't, this is as clear as you can get. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? Jesus sounds a lot like his mom. I think Jesus learned a few things growing up 
with Mary because Jesus' preaching sounds a lot like Mary's song. Mary cares about justice. Jesus cares about justice. I think it's safe to say that we as disciples should care about justice because the good news of Jesus' arrival should be good news not just to a person's spirit but to their bodies, to their physical bodies. It should lift up people physically. Mary, I think Mary is an incredibly helpful model to us when it comes to working for justice because I think she helps us with two things. She does it with humility. Notice the humility of Mary. She takes no credit in this song. It is everything that God has done for Mary is a pure gift. All generations will call me blessed, she sings. Not for the great things that she does, but for the great things the mighty one has done for her. Right? I think this is a helpful thing. Working for justice is never about performance. Working for justice is never trying to signal to another person how good we are because we care about justice. Working for justice should not swell our pride. Right? Remember, in Mary's song, she's telling us it's actually the, the proud that gets scattered. So if we are working for justice, justice and it's swelling our egos, then we're actually moving in the wrong direction where God scatters the proud. But here's what also Mary teaches us. She teaches us how to work for justice with hope. Let me just give you an example here. So among the many, many, many tragic things that are happening in the Middle East right now in Palestine, Israel, I think one of the really tragic things that I've heard some stories is there's been people for years, for decades, who have worked to bring together Palestinians and Israelis to get to know each other, to understand each other, to hear each other's story, who have done hard, hard work of reconciliation. And so much of that work for them just feels shattered. You can just hear when they talk about it how painful this is to have worked for so long to just feel like it's all going away. It's very easy when you work, with those work in justice, feel cynical and feel like, is this ever going to change? We know, uh, Krishan and I know some people that run a Catholic worker house in Indiana and also a homeless uh, shelter for teenagers in Denver. And I think one of the things, getting to know them a little bit, I've learned in reading their newsletters, how often people you work with just die. When you work with very marginalized populations, every year, those people, some of them will not make it out of there and they will die, and it's heartbreaking. It, it's, it's, it must be so discouraging and sometimes to pour your life into people and for them to not, uh, to, to find out that they, they end up just dying in the streets. It's easy to get cynical. It's easy to give up hope. But here's what Mary is so helpful. She sings about a revolution differently than oftentimes we talk about, right? She, she, look, look at, um, look at the, um, the song again, and you'll notice it's all in past tense. Well, and let me just say, for Mary, Mary is still, she understands things better now, but she's still going to have to come to understanding what it means to bear the Messiah too. She's going to have to understand how much pain it's going to cost her to bear the Messiah. As we'll soon read, I think, uh, in a couple weeks, a sword is coming from Mary's soul. But Mary hangs on, right? This is, I love this about Mary. Mary loses her son. Acts comes along. In the upper room, the apostles are gathering. The church is starting. Who is there? Mary's there. Mary's there. She has not given up. She has seen the heartbreaking loss of her own son. She has experienced the sword piercing her own soul, and yet she has not given up. And here's why I think she, she, 
one of the reasons we know that. She knows that God's promises are as good as done. Again, look at the song. It's all in the past tense. It's, it's easy to miss this, but she's singing this song, but she's singing it all in the past tense. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has, he has, he has. How can Mary say that? How can she use the past tense? Because Mary knows that when God promises something, it's as good as done. Gabriel comes to her, says you're pregnant, it's good as done. Elizabeth is pregnant, it's good as done. Mary is learning something very important here, that God's promises are good as done. And that is why she can sing the past tense, and that is why she can rejoice. And that is one of the reasons why we continue to hope even in the midst of hopelessness, because God has promised, as the song said earlier, to redeem all of creation. That's going to happen. That's as good as done. And that should help, help inspire us and give us hope to work for justice.